are finishing 1 Peter today. So I will be reading 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, um, you may read along with me, or you can just listen. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Earlier this year, one of our humble elders went to be with the Lord. His name is Dave Simpson. I was good friends with him and appreciated his service and for various reasons asked him to write out his story um, in conjunction with his best friend, Brian Maurer. We, we really wanted to learn more, all sorts of fun reasons from the way that he came to know Christ or be known by Christ from his time serving in the military and the very beginning of his story starts with a prayer by Thomas Merton. And it really blessed me this morning because Dave is a humble leader and this is a humble prayer. I commend it to you. I'll read it and then if you want me to send it to you, I will. My Lord God, I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart 
from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. I think it's a beautiful prayer, a humble prayer. It was delightful to me to see in David's autobiography that it's a blessing to you also. I've been very blessed in the seven years here and 12 years at my previous church to, to mostly, not exclusively, but mostly serve with very, very humble leaders, shepherds. The New Testament uses two words to describe the role of elder, which existed in the local churches. Paul said, appoint uh, elders in every town. Peter here is encouraging them, calling himself an elder. They call them overseers and shepherds because that is what the local church has to do. We have to make decisions and as importantly, if not more importantly, we have to be both able and capable of walking alongside hurting people and joyful people and say, well done, without any pride. Or sit in a living room and hold a hand and say, Jesus loves you and nothing will ever change that. You can't relate this way anymore. We have a lot of elders that both do that and are capable of doing that and are longing to grow in their ability to both oversee the church. Should we come back inside and worship? If so, should we wear masks? If we are going to come back inside, when should we keep the 9 o'clock service going? And you'll hear the answers to all those questions on Wednesday um, after the elders meet again this coming Tuesday. When I was in St. Louis, we saw the rise of a, of a relatively large megachurch. It'd be humongous for Connecticut standards, medium for Midwestern standards, and just another church maybe in the South. But um, I knew many of the people that worked there, and every time we heard some bad news about that church, um, Rachel will ask me some version of the question, when was the last time the elders disagreed with you? And I, you know, look at my calendar and think, when did we last have a session meeting? because that mutual accountability is part of humility and that's how the church continues to be the church and it's why a number of of larger churches both Presbyterian and Baptist and I'm sure others that I don't know of are seeking a local model of accountability because the church requires humble leaders those who are capable of being subject to one another in the Lord and those who we as church members are capable of being subject to Not a real cool idea in 2020 to be subject to one another, but it is a firm idea of the New Testament that we need one another for multiple things. And one of the things that we need is to be subject to one another, to be able to encourage one another in the ways of life and discourage one another in the paths of death that are all around us. I wonder if it gets harder as we get older. I remember the first year that I was here meeting with a man... um, around 20 years older than me, and I said something about being tired. And uh, he said, you're not old enough to be tired. And I started laughing and patted him on the shoulder, which is a sign of danger, by the way. It means I'm really upset if that happens. And I said, you don't know my story well enough to say that quite yet. Um, And yet here's the passage. Here's Peter talking about humility and subjection to one another. Peter, the dynamic apostle, Peter, the the leader in the early church. Peter, who is committed to continuing to grow, not only because of the Holy Spirit in his life, 
but by being subject to his fellow elders and the community of the people of God. And apparently elders get a crown, so that's kind of exciting. Stu, isn't that exciting? Andrew, Joseph, Egg, are you excited about your crowns? Bill? A lot of elders in the room today. Nancy, you were an elder back in the day. Yeah, Don Haas recruited you specifically. You get a crown. Isn't that cool? And, it, and if you wonder about the crown, I, I want to encourage you in kind of a broad way that the, the, Bible's incur, the Bible regularly asks us to imaginatively understand our lives in light of a kingdom that we can't see. Imaginatively understand our lives in light of heaven where God exists and is outside time, as are all those who have trusted God. And imagine what our lives will look like after Jesus returns. Because everything that you do in this life will matter in the new heavens and the new earth. And for me, the biggest help to that imaginative ability to understand texts like this brief though it is, is a book called The Great Divorce. It's not about divorces and husbands and wives. It's about a people that take a bus from hell to heaven. This is not scriptural, but from an imaginative standpoint, C.S. Lewis helps us understand what it might mean. There's a woman in the story that has a pack of dogs that follow her, and it's her crown of glory as he imagines it. I think there's a person with a herd of horses too. I don't remember how that person got their herd of horses. At any rate, Because the Bible challenges our imagination to understand how our lives now will matter in the new heavens and the new earth, I commend to you this book. It's been by far the most helpful to me. As we attempt to be gripped by the grace of Jesus and grow in humility ourselves, I wonder if one of the keys is understanding that biblically the difference between humble and humiliate is almost entire. Perhaps occasionally when humiliated, we learn some humility, but that's not the scripture. That's not a scriptural definition that actually just barely, maybe sometimes factors into a scriptural definition of humility. What Peter's talking about here, what Paul talks about, I'm frankly shocked. Not shocked. I'm, I have to preach on this a lot because it's in the text a lot that we, are bo- we both learn humility and we are to continue to grow in it. Peter's fully expecting himself to grow in it, We need to grow in it also. Humility is authentically who we are. What we're good at, what we're not good at. Our capacities and limits, our strengths and weaknesses, and a wise honesty in community about those things. We require humble leaders because we are to come alongside one another as we cast our anxieties on him. The word anxiety, I think, continues to evolve in its definitions colloquially. What Peter is talking about and what Paul Paul says almost the exact same words, and that's because they read one another. Such a cool part of the New Testament. I'll talk about it in a few minutes. What Peter is talking about is an overcare. You know know that thing that should have bothered you but made you like crazy for two days? That's that's an example of something that we overcare about. And so we cast it on him. We learn to do that in prayer. We learn to do that with one another, wisely. The extra cares that we have, the ones that keep us from sleeping, the ones that encourage us to have imaginary conversations with someone, those are the things we cast on the Lord. And they don't disappear, 
but it's provision for us. It's two kinds of provision. I remember a pastor saying years ago, when you're still having imaginary conversations with the person, you're not ready to confront them yet. Perhaps the most regularly, annoyingly great point I've heard in a long time about when to confront someone about trouble that I'm having with them. One of the ways that we are subject to one another and come alongside one another to to combine these things is I want to encourage you that your elders are happy to pray with you. You have other friends that are happy to pray with you and that matters just as much in God's side and yet God's provision for the local church until he returns is to have community with one another where we care for one another. One of my very, very favorite pictures of this community of saints in COVID was a man whose wife was in the hospital and he knew he needed prayer. So they got some folding chairs and they met in the parking lot and they spaced themselves out and he received prayer for himself and for his wife. Casting not an illegitimate anxiety, a very real anxiety on the Lord amongst friends. I think that's one of the ways that we humble ourselves. Peter says to humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to close yourselves, all of you, with humility. About ten references to humility in this passage. I'm going to stop talking about it because I think I've already defined it, at least okay. In other sermons, perhaps better. We are to humble ourselves and subject ourselves, and that's something that we receive. That's something that we learn through authentic community. That's something that we... involves apologizing. It involves learning to repent. And when we cast our anxieties on, on Christ, this is not only a shedding of overcares. This is also an unfettering of ourselves and an empowering move. When we say to God, I am upset that Art Club was canceled, that's not only talking to him honestly about our life, that's also longing to move towards something good in our life. I'm using an example for my 14-year-old, I'm not sure she's listening. When we say to God, I'm sad that I didn't get to go to Camp Chase, that's not only good for your heart because he hears you, but that also frees you to the other things that you have in life today. When you confess a relational overcare or anxiety to God, that not only begins to heal your heart, it also frees you into the other relationships in your life. All of you have work to do, loving God and loving neighbor where you find yourselves and work that you're actually called to do. And when we learn to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us, we're not only releasing ourselves from those anxieties through the power of prayer and knowing that God hears us, we're unfettering ourselves from that that we might be our full selves in Christ in the places we find ourselves in. And here's the reality about casting our cares on him. You have them. Peter opens with, you are in exile and grieved by many trials. If it's not in your calendar, you're not going to cast your anxieties on him. Or you're going to do so in a way that's not going to be as good for your heart and empowering to the agency Christ calls you into. If it's not in your calendar. How would you finish this sentence? If it's not in the calendar... That's right, Mary Sharp, you and I are similar. If it's not in the calendar, I'm not going to remember. 
Andrew, I'm dying to know what you would... It's okay if it's funny. Okay, he doesn't have anything. That's the first time I've asked him for a pleasant quip and didn't get one, I think. I'm sure it's happened before. Friends, we are commanded to cast our cares on the Lord, not only as provision for our heart, but as a way of unfettering ourselves to move into the roles he has called for us. And if it's not in the calendar, you know it's not going to happen. Humble leaders, help us to cast our anxieties on him and resist evil. Throughout the New Testament, we hear a lot of things about the devil. Here's the truth. Does he exist? Yes. Is he defeated? Yes. Is he shackled? No. Does he have more than an ounce of power than what God allows? No. In that tension, we still have a role in a world that is both cursed and susceptible to him as God allows. We are to resist him. You are resisting him right now. Isn't that good news? The most profound way of resisting the evil one is worship because that is the opposite of what the evil one wants, is worship of the one true God and of nothing else. When you are wisely honest in community and allow your friends to help you cast your anxieties on God, that is a move of resistance to the evil one because not only does he not want you to worship the Lord, he wants you to both be and to feel alone. More challenging to figure out in COVID and just as essential to our lives is that we do community with other Christians, not exclusively with other Christians in terms of friendship, but we desperately need other Christians in our lives. And it's a movement of resistance to the evil one when, we're wi- when we engage in wise friendship with other followers of Christ. And then when we go and serve, when you act like a Christian in your place of business, when you choose to serve the local food pantry or with our retreat ministry to the rescuers, that is an act of resistance because the evil one wants people enslaved. And those that are working to get them out of slavery The evil one does not want them to have rest because he wants them to burn out. We have a role. I think here Peter is telling us something about how over the decades he learned to be gripped by and to re-preach what he heard Jesus say in John 10.10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Jesus describes the way that Satan is going to attack Peter right around the crucifixion. And then Jesus is so gracious to pursue Peter and draw him back so carefully and lovingly. And so for decades, Peter learned to preach on this, and now he writes this letter to these seven cities and the churches within them. One of the most beautiful ways that Peter continued to resist the evil one was continuing to learn and grow up and mature. While you're on this earth, you will have the opportunity to continue to mature as a follower of Christ. If you read, especially the end of John and the book of Acts, you see Peter continuing to subject himself to fellow leaders and to the Holy Spirit and to learn, specifically to see all men and women as created in the image of God and to stop judging based upon differences between others. Read Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 15, Peter continued to need to learn these things, and so do we. And that is a way that we resist 
the evil one and lean into the maturing grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives. One of the things I wish when people read the Bible, I wish they had these, maybe we should put it on a bookmark. Every command in the scripture, including the many commands here in 1 Peter, are about avoiding the paths of death in a world where God exists and is good and is loving, but it's under the curse. Every command in the scripture is how to flourish. Here. And so every command is a way of avoiding paths of death. And every command in the scriptures is about a path of life, real life, zoe life, flourishing life, a life of life. The longer I say the word, I wonder if I'm even saying it correctly, you know? Like you just keep saying the word. All of these commands, humble ourselves, be subject to one another, resist the devil, these are ways that we flourish as a child of God in a cursed world. Humble leaders come alongside as we cast our anxieties and resist evil and stand firm in grace. He says it twice here. He says it in verse 12. And verse 9. This is the larger print, but I still have to look for it. And don't you long for that to be true of you? Don't you long to be stable? Don't you long to be more stable, to continue to be rooted the way that the psalmist describes in in Psalm 1, like a tree? Don't you long to grow up the way that Paul describes in Galatians 5, bearing fruit, fruit of the Spirit? That's the promise and the command at the same time. Stand firm in grace. Let us understand that Peter is talking about standing firm in grace in the context of suffering. You're going to suffer, and most of us are not going to suffer as profoundly as the Christians Peter was writing to. We wonder if when he describes uh, the role of Satan, whether he's thinking of Christians who under Nero's reign were given over to wild animals in the Colosseum. Many of them lived in places, though not all. It was a complicated governmental system. Many of them lived in places where it was illegal to call Jesus Lord, and they were going to be persecuted for it. Very soon after this letter, I think, 64 AD, Nero was using Christians as torches to light up his palace. Our suffering is different. And there's still encouragement to be had here, because around the world there are places where it is illegal to call Jesus Lord, and there are places where perhaps it's even easier to be a Christian than in the United States. We could talk about that. That's a complicated conversation. But nevertheless, we are to be encouraged that around the world right now, billions of people are calling Jesus Lord on Sunday as a celebration of his resurrection. And that's not only to encourage us, it's to encourage us in the midst of the sufferings that we experience. And suffering is any effect of the curse. Of course someone else has it worse. That doesn't mean you're not grieved and not suffering. And speaking into those circumstances, Peter says, stand firm in it. Verse 12, he says, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Trust. I believe you trust him or you wouldn't be watching this unless you're curious about that. 
and I hope you continue to ask your legitimate questions, both of the Lord and of friends. But most of the people listening to this and sitting in this room trust Jesus, and Peter is saying, ask that that trust be deeper and more profound in your life. That's what it means to stand firm in it. It is a move of head. It is a move of emotion. It is a move of your very being to stand firm in grace. Here, when Andrew Sharp preached for me, he mentioned Peter writing from Rome. So at this point in verse 13, says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, so does Mark, my son. This is Mark, who's the author of the book of Mark, who Paul trusted for a while, then stopped trusting and started trusting again in the book of Acts. He was with Peter much of the time. Sylvanus is Silas. Um, they had longer, and you know, they abbreviated names just like we do. My name's actually Matthew. If you want me to think that you're my mom and I'm in trouble, you can call me Matthew. And the reason that I bring this up is not because I think you're interested in all the interconnections of the New Testament in this very moment, but because the promises of verse 10 and verse 11 are made stronger when we realize how profound the evidence is that this book is reliable and good and true. That doesn't finish answering the question, but a significant part of the reason that we consider the New Testament reliable and historical and true is the interreferencing of authors. So in 2 Peter, Peter talks about reading Paul and not understanding him. Doesn't that make some of you feel better who have had trouble understanding Paul? Here he's referencing Silas, who we see in the book of Acts that Luke wrote. Here we see Mark, who wrote his own book and is referenced in the book of Acts. This is one of the proofs that we have that the Bible is trustworthy. And the reason I want to say that is both because it's true and because it's important. Many of you will go into high school and college and you'll, you'll hear the Bible talked about accurately. And many of the rest of the, you will hear it talked about inaccurately in terms of not historically reliable. So I like to bring these things up because they're important. Also because when we listen to verse 10 and verse 11, it becomes more profound, not as an ethereal truth, but as a historic truth for those seven, church, seven groups of churches that becomes a historic truth for you and for me and a daily truth. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That requires imagination to understand what that looks like in this life. When Jesus returns to earth and makes all things new, we will understand it in far greater measure. The first century Christians understood it. And we're engrafted into that story and that grace we call the communion of saints. Here again, these promises, which were not written to you, but are absolutely written for you if you call Jesus Lord. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to receive communion together. If you need to go get your communion elements, you can wait till the prayer's over, or you can go get them now. If you're in this room with us and you don't have communion elements, you can wave at Counselor Sharp, and he'd be happy to get you communion elements.
you pray with me? God of all grace, we ask for your provision that we might stand firm in your grace because of your power, because of your provision in feeding us in the Lord's Supper, because of your provision in speaking to us in your word, because of your provision in the Holy Spirit that will never leave us or forsake us, that indwells us now until we celebrate with you at your return. Grant us grace, Jesus, to remind ourselves of the gospel and thereby resist the evil one. Grant us grace, Father, to remember and to remind ourselves that we are loved. Grant us grace, Holy Spirit, to humble ourselves and subject ourselves to our fellow Christians that we might grow up. Holy Spirit, enlarge our minds and imaginations and emotions to receive all that you have for us in your supper. Amen.